Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to welcome you all to this evening's public forum on Hong Kong and mainland China, contested realities and future visions. And I'd like also to welcome our distinguished speakers, Dame Anson Chan and Dr. Martin Lee. Dame Anson Chan, who holds the Order of the Grand Bohemia and is also a Dame Grand Cross of the Order of St. Michael and St. George, was the Chief Secretary for Administration, that is, second in command under the last Governor of Hong Kong, Chris Patton, and remaining in that position under C.H. Dung, the first Chief Executive of the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region of the People's Republic of China. She was later an elected member of Hong Kong's Legislative Council. Martin Lee, Queen's Counsel and first Senior Counsel in Hong Kong's Order of Precedence, was the Founder Chair of Hong Kong's Democratic Party. He is often regarded as the father of Hong Kong's democracy movement, or alternatively, as the running dog of the colonialists, a badge I'm sure he wears with honour. This talk is part of the Sydney Ideas Programme and is jointly hosted by the China Studies Centre at the University of Sydney, the Sydney Democracy Network and the Australian Institute of International Affairs, New South Wales. In the audience tonight, we have a number of distinguished guests, too many for me to mention, but I'd like particularly to welcome the President of the Institute of International Affairs, New South Wales, Richard Bronowski, and also the Honourable Helen Shamho, former member of the New South Wales Parliament. And our thanks are also due to those who have helped to organise tonight's event, including Dr. Robin Fitzsimons and Mr. Chin Jin, who is not here tonight. So this is how this evening's event is going to go. First of all, we're going to hear from our two guests. And after that, around about seven o'clock, maybe, there will be plenty of time for you as members of the audience to ask questions. The arrangements for asking questions may be a little bit different from what you are used to at these events. Tonight we have two people with handheld microphones who are going to come down to the bottom of the steps on either side. So if you wish to ask a question, you'll please come down and queue in a good Hong Kong fashion. <laughs> Hong Kong people are very good at queuing. And wait for your turn to, to speak to the microphone. Now finally, let me introduce myself. My name is Jocelyn Che, and I'm a visiting professor in the School of Languages and Cultures at this university. I'm also the director of the Australia-China Institute for Arts and Culture at Western Sydney University. And I'm a counsellor 
of the Australian Institute of International Affairs New South Wales. And, perhaps more importantly, I have got very long-standing connections with Hong Kong and regard it as my second home after Australia. These connections go back to 1961, when I went there as having just graduated from this university on a British Commonwealth scholarship, and I did my master's degree at the University of Hong Kong. I stayed on to work there. I met my husband there. Our first child was born there. And later on, I worked in Hong Kong in, up to the point in the 1990s when I was Australian Consul General in Hong Kong. And that was the time when the great discussions were being held as to the future of Hong Kong and how to secure the prosperity and the peace and stability of that territory. Now, Hong Kong, for all kinds of reasons, is very important to Australia. It's estimated that at the present time, there are around 90,000 Australians who are living in Hong Kong. Most of the major Australian companies have offices or presences in Hong Kong. In, histori in historical terms, Hong Kong's connection with Australia goes back to the days of the gold rush when it was the main point of transit for Chinese migrants who were coming to work on the gold fields. Since, particularly since the 1980s, we have had many Hong Kong people who have settled in Australia and particularly in Sydney. So that sometimes I feel that, that this city of Sydney is really like a suburb of Hong Kong. And in the part of uh, Sydney where I live, it's quite possible to go shopping and to use my rather poor Cantonese um, and uh, to meet many Hong Kong friends. Also, these, since China opened up, Hong Kong has become an important point, as it always has been, in fact, for doing business with China. So I won't say much more about Hong Kong's future, except that I think what I've said emphasises that we have not just an, um, a, an intellectual or strategic reason for wanting to guarantee Hong Kong's future, but we also have many very deep people-to-people -people connections which make it a topic that we are all deeply interested in. And without more ado, I would now like to invite Dr. Martin Lee to speak. I think he's going to speak from the uh, table here. Thank you. Thank you, Jocelyn. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm a barrister, and I've been a barrister for exactly 50 years, and still practicing in Hong Kong. And whenever we do anything serious, a barrister will be on his feet, not sitting down. He also charges more for standing up. I see a number of young people here, which is encouraging. 
I belong to yesterday. But when I see young faces, I see tomorrow. On the 4th of September this year, a number of young people were elected into our legislature. The youngest one was 23. And if our laws had not been that archaic, his partner, even a younger person, Joshua Wong, would have been elected into the legislature instead. Because Joshua was only 19, he was not and he is not eligible to be a candidate. Our laws were changed when I was in the Hong Kong legislature some years back. And we reduced the age of majority to 18 from 21. But the government would not reduce the age to 18 for people running for elections. They insisted to keep it at 21. That's why Georgia could not stand. Otherwise, Nathan Law, who actually ran with him, with his assistance and got the seat, would have been in the Hong Kong legislature instead. So I have great hope for the future of Hong Kong because of these young people. But going back to the past, because we're supposed to consider the realities of today and then look into the future, future visions. Let me bring you back, therefore, to the year 1984, when the Joint Declaration was announced on the 26th of September. I was thrilled when I read a copy of it because I could see in it a possible future for Hong Kong under which Hong Kong could keep our freedoms, our rule of law, our way of life, and the same system of law that we have been practicing under the British government, namely the common law. And I was instrumental, not the British, in persuading the Chinese government to allow our common law to continue. I was also instrumental in persuading the Chinese side to allow the Court of Final Appeal to be established in Hong Kong as opposed to Beijing, as it should have been. Because before, the ni before 1997, our highest Court of Appeal was the Privy Council, it was in London. But I was able to persuade them to have it established in Hong Kong and to allow overseas judges to sit in our Court of Final Appeal. So I thought it could work. But to make it work, the one country, two systems. Thank you. To make it work, this policy of one country, two systems must be implemented to the full. Because it says, one country, two systems, Hong Kong people ruling Hong Kong with a high degree of autonomy. How can Hong Kong people rule Hong Kong with a high degree of autonomy when they cannot even elect their own leaders? That's a problem. So I was very sensitive about this, about democracy, because I know that without it, two systems cannot work. The one country part was implemented at 
the strike of midnight on the 30th of June 1997, when the British flag came down and the Chinese flag went up. Some of you would have seen that in your television screen. That was one country. Two systems. We are still waiting for democracy to be given to us. Under the basic law, which I helped to draft, and I wasn't happy with a number of the provisions there, but at least Hong Kong people were told that they could have democratic election of both the chief executive as well as all members of the legislature 10 years after the handover. This is now the 19th year after the handover and genuine democracy is still no way to be seen. So China has been reneging on her promises. That is why Hong Kong is facing a lot of difficulties, particularly under this chief executive, CY Leung. I will leave it to Anson to tell you, some of you already know part of it, but Anson will tell you more, why this has been failing. To me it's very simple, because there is no genuine democracy yet. As to the future, why should it be different? Why should I envision a different future than what was already promised by Deng Xiaoping in the Joint Declaration and later enshrined in the Basic Law? I have been holding Beijing to its promises to us. I have never asked for anything more than was already promised. Democracy, genuine democracy, is what is still lacking in Hong Kong. Now, I believe that Hong Kong's future, whether we like it or not, is going to be decided by one man, Xi Jinping. We all know it. If he says, Xi Jinping will, will have a second term, he will have a second term. Nobody in Hong Kong would dare challenge him. If Xi Jinping said, I only want this guy, no one else, then Hong Kong will be finished. But if Xi Jinping were to say, let us go back to Deng Xiaoping's blueprint for Hong Kong, then there is hope. There is hope for the one country, two systems to be successfully implemented. Why would I still retain any hope that Xi Jinping will go back to Deng Xiaoping's way when for almost nine, for 19 years now the Communist Party has departed from that blueprint. There are actually interesting signs happening in Hong Kong. The pro-Beijing newspapers actually have been fighting with one another, Singbo and the Taikung and Wen Weipao. They've been fighting like that. It is believed that, of course, Taikung Power and Wen Weipao, the traditional pro-Beijing newspapers, were on the side of the central government liaison office in Hong Kong. So that is on the same side of Xi Le. But the Singpao, which is attacking them, would represent the other arm, in fact the executive arm of the Chinese government, the Hong Kong Macau Affairs Office. 
And so you see a difference in approach between the two. Now normally, when the Chinese leaders struggle for, for power, you don't see anything. It's all done quietly behind closed doors. And then when somebody has the upper hand, he comes forward and every decision will be made by him. At the moment, a decision on Hong Kong has yet to be made. So we are waiting. If Xi Jinping wants to Hong to, to see Hong Kong going forward and bringing us back to track, it won't be easy. It's like a big tanker going in one direction, the wrong direction. You want to bring it back. It's very difficult. Very difficult. It's going to take time, but very difficult too. Even if that is the will. I am hoping that Xi Jinping would do that. I am hoping that he would do what Deng Xiaoping laid down in his policy for Hong Kong, one country, two systems. I am convinced that Deng Xiaoping laid down this policy not just for Hong Kong, Macau, or even Taiwan, but it's a policy for the whole nation. Why? Because he wanted Hong Kong to keep all our core values under this one country, two systems. Our rule of law, our level playing field, our capitalist system, stability, prosperity. He wanted us to keep everything which Hong Kong enjoyed under British rule. And the emphasis is 50 years no change. Why? A very official document was released about two years ago by the British government after keeping a secret for 30 years under their law. And that was a, a minute kept by the British government of a very important meeting held in Beijing on the 19th of December 1984 between Margaret Thatcher's government and Deng Xiaoping's government. Of course, it's Zhou Ziyang, but of course we know Deng Xiaoping is it important guy. And the two leaders were sitting down there at that meeting and Deng Xiaoping was recorded to have said to Margaret Thatcher why 50 years? He said our Japanese friends have asked us why 50 years? And I told them that in fact we want 50 years because we want our economy to improve so that we'll be a part with the major economies of the world. So that is our intention. So don't worry that we would not keep our word. Of course I'm paraphrasing a little. It then went on. At the end of that 50, 50th year period, you have even less reason to worry about our God. Because by then, we and the world's largest economies would be depending on one another. So he was hoping to see Hong Kong being the engine leading China forward. And those of you who have been following Hong Kong for the last 13, 14 years would have known that in the early 1980s, China introduced a four modernization program and Hong Kong played the role of the engine. I'm sure Deng Xiaoping was looking at Hong Kong and was happy 
with this Chinese community operating under the capitalist system with stability, prosperity, and so on. And I'm sure that he wanted China to go down the same route. Now, if you look at China today, you don't see socialism, you don't see communism being practiced. You see capitalism. Indeed, the Chinese leaders would have us believe that it's even a market economy, but we say still with a very important degree of government control. Deng Xiaoping changed socialism into capitalism for China without even using the word capitalism. He avoided it completely. He merely called it socialism with Chinese characteristics. Right? Now, I think that is the way forward for China. Because China is now the world's second largest economy. But where would China go from here? Xi Jinping has been hating corruption very hard. The corrupt tigers, of course, are still ganging up against him. So he hasn't actually won that battle with the corrupt tigers yet. Under control, but not entirely won. But when he wins, what happens? If he doesn't win, there could be a disaster for China. If he wins, what's next? Assuming that China can control the massive corruption, I doubt that you can completely eradicate corruption from China now. But if he can control it, control the corrupt tigers, which way? How will he bring China forward? China is already practicing capitalism, really, or socialism with Chinese characteristics. Surely, he must introduce some of the basic elements of the to, to be consistent with capitalism. Surely, the people of China must be given a voice, but not immediately, I grant you. Hong Kong is the best place to be an experiment for China in terms of democracy, particularly when it was already promised to us in black and white. So, as far as I'm concerned, and I look into the future, I go back to Deng Xiaoping's way. And there's no reason why we don't go back to that way. And then, China would go slowly forward, but certainly moving in the direction of democracy and human rights. It's going to take a long time, maybe, but let everything begin with Hong Kong. Human rights are already there. The rule of law is already there. We just lack democracy, which has been promised, as I said. And from then, I think you can see a new beginning. So China is at a crossroads. We are seeing all sorts of unpleasant things in Hong Kong. But I suggest the only way forward for China, in China's own benefit, is to go back to Deng Xiaoping's way. It needs a lot of courage, it needs a lot of confidence, but let's hope that Xi Jinping has it. If not, Hong Kong is finished. And it will be very difficult for the rest of the world to deal with China. But if China can
independence. Convince the rest of the world that Xi Jinping wants to bring about reforms in China, then certainly he's a person that the West could trust. But he must show that he is such a person, he's a reformer. Not easy at all. But I suggest it is in China's own interest to go down that route. Now, whether I'm completely stupid in entertaining such <coughs> optimism will, will be shown very quickly. You will know the answer very quickly because Xi Jinping must decide very soon whether he will allow somebody else to become the chief executive in Hong Kong or keep CY Tong. If you keep CY Tong, then I not only am I disappointed, but I, I don't think Hong Kong will have a future. It's as bad as that. So, Ensign does not agree with my optimism. I call it cautious optimism only. But what I, in, what I have done so far is, while I entertain some hope, a lot of people say some vain hope, I never let that influence my action. I still carry on insisting that China must honour her promises. And I hope the rest of the world in dealing with China will not allow my cautious optimism to persuade you to sit back and fold your arms and hope for the best. No! China must be told by the international community, you have reneged on your promises on Hong Kong's democracy. Please deliver. Otherwise we can't trust you. What's the point of entering into new agreements with China when you see China has been breaking this joint declaration with the British? a document which they bothered. They actually wanted to be registered with the United Nations. So my vision for the future is what Deng Xiaoping had for China, not just Hong Kong. And I hope that Xi Jinping can deliver. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I want to say first of all how pleased I am to see so many of you present here. I take that as an indication that you take a great interest in what's happening in our part of the world. Um, I have very fond memories of Sydney. I remember in my capacity as Chief Secretary coming here on numerous occasions and in particular to open the Hong Kong government's economic and trade office in Sydney in 1995. Um, I was present in 1984 at the signing of the Joint Declaration by Margaret Thatcher and by Shao Ziyang in Beijing. Uh, and I remember uh, in the subsequent years, particularly after I assumed the post of Chief Secretary, the second in command of the uh, Hong Kong government and subsequently the SAR government, being rolled out to travel all over the world to sell the Joint Declaration to the international community, to assure the international community that the blueprint of one country, two systems, a high degree of autonomy, Hong Kong people ruling Hong Kong, with the rule of law intact and the protection of basic rights and freedoms, that that would serve Hong Kong well. That would mean that there would be no change in Hong Kong, in our lifestyle, in our core values, other than, as Deng Xiaoping pointed out, the Chinese flag went down on the stroke of midnight on 30th of June 1997, 
and the Chinese flag went, the British flag went down, the Chinese flag went up, and the governor was replaced by the chief executive. I served for four years under C.H. Tong, who was the first chief executive. Um, I retired a year ahead uh, of my scheduled date in the year 2001 um, for a very specific reason. And for the first five years after my retirement, I kept my head low. But watching the uh, slow progress on democratization for Hong Kong, and in particular what was happening to the rule of law, to Hong Kong's core values, I decided to run for the vacant seat in the Legislative Council. I won by a convincing margin, and I've been active ever since in the political field, essentially because there are two issues that concern me. First, to see that China deliver on its promise to the people of Hong Kong about universal suffrage, one man, one vote, for the election of the chief executive and all members of our legislature. And also, I'm very, very concerned at the quality of governance since I spent nearly 40 years. And I like to think that I've had a contributory role to play in building up the civil service. We are now coming up to the 20th anniversary of Hong Kong's handover to China. Let's look at the reality on the ground. And I'd like to do this by reference to several key indicators as to the state of health of one country, two systems, which revolve around the rule of law, an independent judiciary, a squeaky clean civil service, and basic rights and freedoms. Let's look first of all at governance. One of the two legacies that the British left to Hong Kong when they departed in 1997 was a highly efficient, high morale civil service with a very high sense of probity, increasing transparency and accountability to the people of Hong Kong. But when Mr. C.H. Tong decided in the year 2001, 2002 actually, to introduce a layer of political appointments Subsequently added to by Donald Trump, the second chief executive, he grafted on two more layers of political uh, appointees, supposedly to require the top government officials to be more accountable. I objected to this because I felt that when the chief executive is not popularly elected and therefore lacks political legitimacy, it is extremely dangerous to concentrate the power of appointing the top dozen posts within the Hong Kong government in one pair of hands without the necessary checks and balances. And I hate to say that events subsequent to that have proven me absolutely right. If you ask the average man in the street in Hong Kong, this system simply hasn't worked. Top officials have become even less accountable even less transparent. Civil service morale is at an all-time low, and how can it not be low when the political appointees will take credit for things when they go right, but when things go wrong, they all disperse and hide and leave the poor civil servants holding the baby. Let's look again at 
Presley, one of Hong Kong's strengths <coughs> is that we have a lively, vibrant free press. We have free flow of information. Anybody can stand up, criticize the government, criticize whatever they like, so long as they do not break the laws of Hong Kong. But if you look at the public's confidence in Hong Kong media today, it has fallen to a 10-year low. And if you look at the World Freedom Index compiled by the Reporters Without Frontiers, in the year 2002, Hong Kong ranked number 18. This year, we are number 69. We have seen increasing self-censorship. We have seen dismissal of popular talk show hosts, columnists, simply because they dare to speak the truth or to utter their views. We have seen um, Beijing, pro-Beijing supporters <coughs> buying up the press. The only consolation, I suppose, is that whilst the printed media, apart possibly from one local newspaper, Apple Daily, is increasingly towing the Communist Party line, at least today, you are seeing a proliferation of social media and internet web page, so that editors of the printed newspapers no longer have sole jurisdiction over what will be written or said. You can bet that if the web page runs with the story, even the printed media will have to follow suit. We have seen evidence of Beijing wielding its muscle and making corporations, including international banks, lift their advertisements from newspapers who are seen in the eyes of Beijing not to tell the lie. So little wonder that we are very, very concerned about the state of health of our media. And I suggest to you that it's not just the common men in the street who's concerned about this. The business sector should also be concerned because if you do not have free flow of information, if the cat that the press is gagged, then business cannot simply cannot thrive. Let's look again at the rule of law. I think by and large we would say that the judiciary remains fairly independent. Uh, but I'm not quite sure how long that will last, given some recent events. You've all read about the case of the uh, Cosway Bay book publishers. At least one of the book publishers held British passport and was forcibly abducted from Hong Kong and then paraded before state television and made to confess to what was, in our eyes, patently untrue. One of the other book publishers who admittedly was placed under detention whilst he was in Shenzhen was courageous enough to talk about his ordeal, an eight-month ordeal, when he was held incommunicado and made to sign up to false confessions. This particular incident, I think, brought home forcefully to all of us, and not just to the average man in the street, but to the business sector, that the specter of the exercise of extrajudicial powers on Hong Kong soil mean that we are no longer even safe in our own beds. 
at least up to that case, we all thought that we were safe enough in Hong Kong, provided we don't break Hong Kong laws. But this book publisher incident demonstrated forcefully to us that it's not just on political issues that you can be made to disappear from Hong Kong. Even when there is a business dispute, there's nothing to rule out that some strong arm agent within mainland China might not take it into his head that a certain person should be abducted. This is in direct breach of one country, two systems, and judicial independence. Britain, unfortunately, as the other signatory to the Joint Declaration, has not really delivered in terms of its legal and moral obligations to Hong Kong to defend one country, two systems. But at least the book publisher case prompted the Foreign Secretary to point out that this was a very, very serious breach of the Joint Declaration. Next, I'd like to look at academic freedom. Hong Kong people places a very high value on education, on tertiary education. But what is crucial to education, to opening minds and allowing people to say what they want to say without risk to life and limb, crucially important is academic freedom and institutional autonomy. But you have read about the incident involving Professor Johannes Chen at Martin and Mine, alma mater, Hong Kong University. We are unfortunately left with a colonial relic because in the colonial days, the governor, as a representative of the Queen, was automatically chancellor of all the universities in Hong Kong. But in those days, the power was there, but it was very sparingly exercised, and the role was largely ceremonial. But the situation today is starkly different. The chief executive has power, and he is determined to use it to the hilt by interfering in the internal appointments in universities, by appointing his own people to university senate and university council. Now, the gentleman in question, Professor Johannes Chen, has been a member of my think tank group for many years. You cannot find another more moderate person, a more learned academic. His only sin in the eyes of Beijing and pro-Beijing supporters is that he was a teacher of Mr. Benny Tan, who was one of the chief architects of Occupy Central and subsequently the Umbrella Movement. Johannes was accused of supporting civil disobedience, supporting the Occupy Central. He did nothing of the sort. But just to give you an indication of the reach of the Communist Party's propaganda machinery and United Front tactics, within a period of several weeks, the left-wing press orchestrated a smear campaign against Johannes by writing something like 350 articles denigrating Johannes. And increasingly, you see the chief executive appointing his own people to other universities. In our view, as the oldest university in Hong Kong that has traditionally provided some of the leading lives of the community, including members of the judiciary, if Hong Kong University falls, 
then all the other seven institutions will fall in rapid succession. Talk generally about education. Three or four years ago, a young man in his, he was only 15, called Joshua Wong, spearheaded a campaign against the introduction of so-called national education into our school curriculum. The government gave money to two NGOs to produce national education teaching material. But upon closer scrutiny by the public, we discovered that the so-called national education curriculum was largely brainwashing indoctrination that lauded the uh, achievements of one-party system rule uh, and denigrated American democracy. Of course the Hong Kong people were up in arms. We don't send our children to schools to be taught this sort of thing. It's all very well to teach Hong Kong people more about Chinese history, more about our culture, etc., etc. But Hong Kong people will not stand for this sort of indoctrination. So Joshua and his student colleagues took to the streets and within the matter of several days marshaled 100,000 people to take to the streets, which in turn forced the Hong Kong government to withdraw the entire national education curriculum. So what about our future? I think our vision for Hong Kong is a very, very clear one. We want China to adhere to one country, two systems. We want China to assure us that we will get universal suffrage, that is genuine universal suffrage, fair and equal election, as promised in the Joint Declaration and the Basic Law. And we want assurance that our core values and our lifestyle will be protected. This is the cornerstone of one country, two systems. It is what Deng Xiaoping promised, and it is what is good, not just for Hong Kong, but I suggest also for China. I would like to conclude this um, address on a somewhat personal note. Some people would say that I've fallen for great, from very great heights, from being the second in command of the SAR government to now being labelled by pro-Beijing supporters or even by Beijing as a traitor. Well, you will not be surprised to hear that I definitely do not see myself as a traitor. I see myself as 100% Chinese. I'm very proud of my country's achievements. The fact that in several decades of open door policy, Chinese leaders have managed to lift hundreds of millions of people out of abject poverty. They have done a great deal to reduce malnutrition, improve infant mortality, and in the sphere of global warming, you can see very good evidence of how China, if it wishes, can play a very responsible role in helping to reduce global warming. I was in Boston speaking uh, to the um, Tufts University and subsequently at the John F. Kennedy Center. Uh, and some of the officials from the Environment Department within the State Department told me that at least in the area of protecting the environment, reducing global warming, they were seeing excellent evidence of cooperation 
from China. And indeed, I would suggest that in this area, I think China has done rather better than many other countries. So this is an illustration of how China needs the world, but the world also needs China. But being proud of these achievements, do not and cannot blind me to how much still needs to be done in this very great country. And it is my hope that by being seen to be honoring its obligations to Hong Kong under a binding international treaty, that that example will send greater confidence to Australia and to all the other countries who have to deal with a China that is emerging as a very important economic powerhouse. It is by adhering to their international treaty obligations that China can give to the rest of the world confidence in dealing with China. I think at the end of the day, the greatness of any nation is not measured purely in terms of its economic or even its increasing military might. It is in how its leaders treat its own people, particularly the more vulnerable members of society. I think it would be an indication of the confidence of leadership if they will let go, if they will stop pulling back on one country, two systems, allow us to elect our chief executive, and we will demonstrate to China that you have nothing to fear by giving full democracy to Hong Kong. On the contrary, the only way in which Hong Kong can remain relevant in the eyes of the leadership and in the eyes of all mainland cities and provinces is if we are allowed to keep our strengths, which revolve around the rule of law, protection of basic rights and and freedoms, and the ability to continue not only to China's economic growth, but I think equally important to help our country modernize, to help our country come into the 21st century and be accepted as a fully-fledged member of the international community. Thank you very much. Many people here tonight uh, would like to um, ask questions of our two distinguished guests. Can I um, repeat what I said earlier? Um, that our arrangement is that there will be two microphones, two handheld microphones available, one at the bottom of this staircase and the other one at the bottom of the steps over here. So if you wish to raise a question, please come forward and wait for one of those microphones to be made available. I, would, I am sure that a lot of people hold very passionate views, so I would also like to ask you to refrain from making speeches. We've come here to, we've heard two excellent speeches. This is the time for you to ask questions. So please, questions rather than speeches, otherwise I may cut you off. Um, if you want to ask a question, 
please make your way down towards the bottom of the steps now. Good evening, Sweden. Thank you very much for your space. I am a research student studying in the university doing economic degrees. I say many of Hong Kong's problem is actually economic problem, like youth unemployment or housing unaffordability. That is not necessarily uh, unique for Hong Kong. So, for example, in your eyes, if Hong Kong has full democracy, what can the government do anything differently compared to the current government in addressing those economic issues? Thank you. I think a, a, a very big difference. The fact that the chief executive isn't popularly elected at the moment means that even if the general public is extremely unhappy with the performance and the achievements of the chief executive, there is nothing we can do to put him out of office. The chief executive clearly does not regard himself as accountable to the people of Hong Kong. Yes, you are right. Apart from our quest for genuine universal suffrage, there are a whole host of livelihood issues, addressing growing income disparity, making housing affordable, um, improving job prospects, providing greater training, better education. Yes, but this isn't, these are not the only areas that worry the people of Hong Kong. In particular, the younger generation who has really only known life under Chinese sovereignty. Apart from these issues, what they are most concerned about, they're less concerned about materialistic opportunities, but they are concerned at seeing every day a steady erosion of Hong Kong's lifestyle, an erosion of basic rights and freedoms. This is what spawned the uh, umbrella movement. The immediate trigger was clearly the fact that China was dragging its feet on universal suffrage. But the underlying problems have to do with what I've just pointed out. So, Hong Kong people would feel better. If we have the right to elect our chief executive, then we can hold the chief executive to account for his action or his lack of action. We cannot do that at the moment. And this degree of frustration, these young people get more and more angry. Actually, how uh, Hong Kong government is saying, Hong Kong government is putting a blame on lack of supply of land, and therefore it is aging to build enough public housing to house the poor. But recently, it has transpired that there is in fact a lot of land in Hong Kong, land which are used illegally as car parks or as uh, to storage for containers by the mafia in the new territories, working hand in glove with the government, the uh, merchants, the uh, village elders, and the mafia. So there's in fact a lot of land there. Now, with, with a democratically elected government, of course, the government will make use of this land and deal with buying about right, to construct public housing. This is a simple one. Uh, thank, thanks very much for answering Martin. My question is primarily directed at answer. Um, I just, I think for any kind of um, peaceful solution to arrive, we probably need a bit of an understanding from both perspectives. So my question is more about um, if your roles were reversed 
and you know, as your you know, former experience as an administrator and as a politician, um, what would you see as the major obstacles in terms of delivering on those obligations that were set up more than 30 years ago? Um, the main question I kind of have is that, like, it's, it seems like there's a lot of internal difficulties for the Chinese authorities to deliver on what was a promise made you know, more than a generation ago, 30 years ago, where you know, much has changed in terms of the importance of Hong Kong relative to greater China. Um, the, in terms of economic growth, many of the, the core cities in China now you know, have a bigger contribution compared to China, which was the main source of GDP growth you know, in the prior couple of decades. And I think that means a lot less bargaining power for Hong Kong. Um, and for those Chinese authorities, um, I guess they need to also uh, appear that um, there's some degree of parity between different interest groups, whether they be you know, Hong Kong or say other cities. So if you were a Chinese administrator and you were to, you know, to respond to requests like yours, what kind of obstacles do you see and how, how would you deal with it? I think a lot of the uh, obstacles are man-made and made by uh, in Hong Kong, either by the chief executive uh, and his team, or by pro-Beijing uh, supporters, or by people who try and second-guess what Beijing may or may not want to see happening in Hong Kong. First of all, I think the the, uh, the polarization of society is entirely man-made, and I would say that the chief culprit is the chief executive. And if he would mend his ways, I think society would be much more genuinely harmonious. But he has gone out of his way to divide society, to create tension between the executive and the legislature. And most people think that this state of affairs cannot continue. But we are frustrated that there's nothing we can do about it because he has the power and he is prepared to use that power even though public sentiments are against that. Okay? Yes, I admit that the China of today is a very different China who negotiated the Joint Declaration in 1984. China today is the world's second largest economy. I dare say the hardliners in Beijing feel that police are gone. We've given you all these economic duties and you are you know, grateful a lot. The hearts and minds you know, of Hong Kong people, particularly young people, have not returned to the motherland. Um, and therefore, if you continue this way, you are thrown in our side, so we will tighten our grip. But I suggest that that is not only in breach of the promises that Beijing made to the people of Hong Kong, to worldwide international acclaim at the time when the Joint Declaration was signed in 1984, but it's quite the wrong direction for Hong Kong to take. China wishes to see long-term stability and prosperity in Hong Kong. You will only see that, and Hong Kong will only remain relevant in the eyes of Beijing leadership if you allow us to keep our strength. If you allow us to be distinctly different from any other Chinese city or province, and in what way are we different? We cannot compare with mainland China in terms of resources, neither land nor manpower. Where we do compete and continue to compete is in the fact that we have the rule of law, transparency, level playing field, clean government, and protection of basic rights and freedoms. That is why today, 
even with the phenomenal economic growth in mainland China, Hong Kong remains our country's preeminent financial and services center. And that role, I suggest, is not a role that Shanghai or Beijing can easily replace. To do that, you will have to introduce the rule of law. You will need an independent judiciary. All that involves changing mindset. And changing mindset means you have to do it through education. And in my view, it will take at least one, if not two generations. Yes, Hong Kong's destiny lies in the hands of Beijing. But I think we also should have some say in determining our fate. And all we ask is that you deliver on the promises because that is what will enable us to continue to contribute to our country. China wishes to be respected as an international responsible country. And I suggest that the best way of doing it, at least in so far as Hong Kong is concerned, is to be seen to be making a success of one country two systems. Now that China has become the world's second largest economy, there is even more reason for China to change. Remember what I told you about Tan Xiaoping's words? China and the other large economies of the world will depend on each other. You cannot depend on each other by behaving like a man bold in a China shop. <laughs> or like Donald Trump in the USA. <laughs> And um, I learned a lot. Um, I'm a visiting graduate student from Taiwan, based here in Sydney at the moment. Um, I understand this is not a Taiwan section. However, um, there are a lot of things happening right now with Taiwan, Hong Kong, China, and so on and so forth. Um, I was wondering um, either of you could give some practical advice or your views on the Taiwan situation, particularly to the fact that um, there was a statement made by the um, current president a while ago saying that you know in the face of Chinese pressure we should not you know stand low we should confront we should do whatever it takes to keep off Chinese pressure. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I think uh, the Taiwanese uh, people and the government have already made it clear, seeing what is happening in Hong Kong, particularly in recent years that one country, two systems is not for that. Besides, uh, it, is, it is true that Taiwan is a democracy, whereas Hong Kong is not, despite the promises laid down in the joint declaration. And so far as Taiwan's relationship with the mainland is concerned, I think uh, the new president, Tsai Ing-wen, is between a rock and a hard place. If she goes out and acknowledges the uh, 1992 consensus, uh, I think the party will win. And yet, the economic realities of Taiwan means that at some stage, a solution has to be found so that China does not continue to apply economic sanctions or economic coercion and force Taiwan out. Because sooner or later, if the state the state continues, the economy will suffer. I'm hopeful that if both parties see it in their interest to try and um, move forward, that a solution can be found. But it's not going to be easy. 
Maybe, I don't know, maybe the, uh, uh, the, the government can refrain from taking uh, an official position and maybe allow the provinces to get on with more direct links with the government. But I think also that whereas maybe many years ago, it was the aspiration of, of uh, Chinese leaders for um, Taiwan to be reunited with the motherland. I think it's now probably accepted at the leadership level that this is not something that they can force. Maybe it is an issue that time will take care of. The Taiwan issue is very relevant to Hong Kong and the And I'm glad it was the title. You put Hong Kong first, Hong Kong and the China. <laughs> when we were in Melbourne, there was actually a map about Hong Kong, and Hong Kong was larger than the rest of China. <laughs> now, Taiwan is important, and um, I remember the first time Chen Shui-bin won as president of Taiwan. I remember a very distinct day in my mind that he rushed towards the mics. There were many, many mics over there, like and he rushed to the mic. He said, Alan, the first thing he said was, the one country to systems policy is not for Taiwan. Just like that. So, now for the past 10 years or more, I believe the Chinese leadership had given up hope of being reunited with Taiwan. But Xi Jinping wants Taiwan. And that's good. If he wants Taiwan, I don't think he can use force to conquer Taiwan. He knows it. The only way is to win the hearts of the people of Taiwan by winning the hearts of the people of Hong Kong. Otherwise, why would the Taiwan people exceed the American system? Simple as that. Uh, thank you very much for the part of your message. Thank you, Shorter. Sorry. I said just thank you, To a, a quarter of an hour or so left, and there are a number of people here. Uh, so, what I would like to suggest is if we could take all the questions, to, and then we will ask us, our speakers to give some responses. Is that all right? With I hope our speakers will agree. Thank you. <laughs> so, yes, Dan Manson. Mr. Lee, good evening, and thank you for your chat. My name is Nick, and I'm a law student at the university. And a whole generation of us, including myself now, have either been born just before or just after the handover, and we haven't had the experiences or the contemplation of the issues concerning Hong Kong like you have. Um, and to an extent, I think I myself am guilty of having a very uh, romantic uh, idea and conception of Hong Kong, and I think my peers of my age are 
very much uh, on the same boat as well. Um, in light of recent developments in Hong Kong's uh, in Hong Kong politics, uh, issues of uh, perhaps separatism or localism arising, uh, much of those advocates or agitators are people my age. Do you think they are rather unrealistic and romantic like I am, hearkening to days that perhaps you know, they weren't around and they haven't experienced like you have? Thank you. Thanks. Um, I mean, Justin, this is a very good idea Sorry. because a lot of questions are similar, probably <laughs> similar answers. Um, thank you very much for your speeches. I think you both spoke extremely well to highlight the issues and problems facing Hong Kong. Um, my question is really, like, obviously, you like to try and come to a solution, and that's where it's going to be difficult. As obviously you know, um, negotiation is going to be extremely hard. Um, so, as you said yourself, it'll probably be another two generations because there's going to be any substantial change. So, what advice would you give to the young people in Hong Kong so that we, you know, don't end up with a bloodbath as a result? Thank you. Uh, thank you for the Spanish speeches. Uh, I'm Xiang from the Unit for Undo Development Studies. And my question is, we talk a, a lot about the realities and the histories in Hong Kong and mainland China. So my question is about the future visions. Um, my concern is in Hong Kong inside the public de democracy. So the Beijing, they might be they might be worried that if the Hong Kong get the public democracy and people will vote to exit in China. So I feel worried about it. Like uh, if it happens, what we what we would do to deal with it? Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, first of all, thanks for being here. I come from the capital of mainland China, Beijing. And uh, my question is about the comparison between Hong Kong and uh, Macau. One country and the uh, two systems is the policy not only implemented in Hong Kong, but also in Macau. In recent years, we have seen that Macau become more and more prosperous, and the people there enjoy a much better living qualities. More importantly, Macau is pretty satisfied with the capital, Beijing. On the other hand, not necessarily to mention Beijing and Shanghai, even, even secondary province in China, such as Tianjin and uh, Suzhou, will support Hong Kong's GDP in the next three years. My question is, would you explain the reason why Hong Kong and Macau face such different destiny. Thank you. Um, I'm sorry, but I know a number of people are inspired now to think of questions, but in view of the time, uh, we cannot take any more than those people who are already on their feet. <coughs> Thank you. Okay, so um, thanks for Edson and Martin coming over to Australia. Uh, it's really have such power of um, guests versus in Australia. So my question is, I just want to get your thoughts on, because um, recently there's an article written by Joseph Lin on suggesting Hong Kong being like Switzerland, so it's like a neutral city between Hong Kong, uh, sorry, between China and the international world. I'm just wondering if you get both of your thoughts on Hong Kong serving as a role for that in terms of protecting itself living the way it is, uh, like protecting itself essentially from like, Chinese influence, and still can serve the purpose of being a uh, prosperous financial
financial center of the world that connects itself from China to the world and to be beneficial to China as well? That's my question. Thanks. Uh, thank you very much for your insightful talk here at Sydney Ideas. My first and primary link to Hong Kong is that I fell in love with my wife in Hong Kong. Uh, so I have a romantic uh, notion of Hong Kong already. Uh, but I often wonder that, you know, we know that China has very long-term geopolitical strategic thinking. And I often wondered whether the adventures in currently in the South China Sea were somewhere linked to the promises being relayed to the people of Hong Kong. And my second thought was, you know, I have been witness to this amazing, incredible entrepreneurial spirit that, that's alive in Hong Kong today. And Hong Kong GDP since 97 has only gone up, perhaps from 150 billion to 300 billion today. And would real democracy, would, would it always elude Hong Kong as long as the economics is, is on the upswing? Thank you. Australia. Um, uh, my question is that I read uh, a series of articles from Sing Paul yes. Daily in a newspaper in Hong Kong, and from those those uh, articles, it seemed to me that um, Hong Kong's event in recent years during Jianming's time is very much manipulated by forces behind and. If that is true, and also one of the articles seem to suggest that uh, the Hong Kong independent um, thing, which is also born within the last four years, is totally man-made as well. Um, and if they, even the recent uh, legislative council election, the two new young person being elected in there, in the beginning, when I read the news, uh, I was excited. But when I read Shin Pao's article about this could be manipulated as well, um, it's really frightening. And so I, I suppose I share Martin's uh, view about if you know if the Xi Jinping can bring this tiger down. Um, otherwise, it's like a very um, very sad situation. Thank you. Um, thank you once again. Um, my question is more uh, to kind of what do you base your hope on Hong Kong's future on? So Hong Kong, like as I said, under the Joint Declaration, but Hong Kong does, itself doesn't have a right to enforce it. It's between Britain and China, Hong Kong's not a party. So as people of Hong Kong, what would you, what other avenues for the people of Hong Kong to um, in the future, and especially considering after 2047, what's left to protect Hong Kong? Like Hong Kong is at the mercy of Beijing, so I just want to see. Yeah, we got your, thank you. So thank you very much, uh, Mrs. Chen and Mr. Lee. Uh, I'm a person from Hong Kong as well, so my question is, now is um, Hong Kong, sorry for the younger generation, is not only, has a different perspective about Hong Kong future, they are not only seeking for democracy, but also self-determination and even independence. So my question is, what's your comment? Do you think that such an option has a possible future? And also, how should Beijing deal with it, especially when the national education campaign fails in 2013? 
necessarily need a civil war. Because if in 30 years' time, if the central government were to go down the democratic way very quickly, it could be like England giving Scotland a referendum, right? So, but okay, if BG says no way, all right, in that case, they are saying, why can't we consider that as part of the many options on the extreme end, on, the, on this end, one tangible system, on this end, independence, in the middle, still one tangible system, right? They want to think about, debate about it, and when we haven't actually enacted any law under Article 23 of the Basic Law, why can't they discuss it? So I support them for the right to discuss, but I myself, I'm objective. I object to independence, I want my plan A. Third question. Uh, what advice would I give to young people uh, without bloodshed? Of course, we all had in mind Tiananmen Square when the student movement started. That's why so many people went there. I, I insisted to go there because I don't want any bloodshed because I have said if they bring in a tank, I want to be the guy standing in front of the tank of the tank, and not these young people. Right? So, unfortunately, there was no bloodshed, not much bloodshed. Although there were so many tear gas thrown at us, so many of them, right, I was, I got the first one. But the police did not use the batons of the people, knock them on the head. They did not do that. Why? Because generally believed in our car that because Xi Jinping gave all this, no bloodshed. So let's remain this way. Actually, I don't think the, uh, the people who say that there's no bottom line, that it's necessary to make a revolution, I don't think they mean it. Because if you really want to start a revolution, would you discuss it in the open? They just want voters to elect them into the Legislative Council. But if you want a revolution, you want to bring down that government together with the legislature, right? You don't want people to elect you into it. So don't worry about that. I don't think they're serious at all. And I think Beijing knows it. <coughs> now, next question on this side. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. If Hong Kong has democracy, then the people of China mainly will ask for it. Yes. But surely, by the same token, if Hong Kong people have human rights protected under the law, press freedom, rule of law, level playing field, of course, that should be ought to have learned that the rest of China will ask for that. They get the better with it. Likewise, when they decided to give Hong Kong democracy, genuine democracy, but in 10 years' time, written into the basic law, of course they would consider that. Right? So I ask this very simple, it's their problem. Right. And they have said it. So I want the promise kept. Now, uh, example, the, the difference between Hong Kong and Macau. Now, Macau is doing poorly, I tell you. <laughs> because once Xi Jinping really hit the corrupt people hard, there's no more money going to the casinos. <laughs> right? But in a way, I'm glad you mentioned it. The Macau people are very subservient, unfortunately. They haven't got people championing the cause of democracy. Like us, the old people, like the young people like Nathan Law and Joshua Law. 
And therefore, Macau people has even less democracy than Hong Kong. By being subversive to Beijing, I think not at all. On this side, Hong Kong becoming an explicit? No need. All I want is my penny. Notice that when I was married in Hong Kong, my advice is stay married to that lady. <laughs>
or the localism is also the perception that the chief executive is bent on polarizing society. Um, it is not cooperating with the legislature. We are not seeing uh, the delivery of the promises laid down in the, in the basic law. And yes, there are other livelihood issues, and the failure of the government to come to grips with these problems also adds to young people's frustration. But I must stress, there are very few people in Hong Kong who think independence is a viable option. Most people know it is not. And if Beijing wants to shut up the clamor for independence, all they need to do is to revert to the faithful implementation of one country, two systems. The voice of independence has been stopped by the chief executive when, two years ago, in his policy address, he referred to an obscure article in the Hong Kong University discussing the merits of independence. If he hadn't made that the centerpiece of his policy address, nobody would have paid any attention. And of course, since then, in the last four years, it's grown out of increasing frustration and anger at the failure of the government to, to act. Uh, what happens beyond 2047? Self-determination, I think, is entirely reasonable because young people are looking at their future. And their future extends beyond 2047. And they are saying it is entirely reasonable that they should have an opportunity to say what sort of a Hong Kong they would like to see beyond the year 2047. And if you listen to some of the recent comments from senior government Beijing officials, there seems to be a view that the best thing that could happen for Hong Kong, for China, and for the rest of the world is for this state to simply come and go. But very soon, the state will have to be discussed because there are land leases that straddle this period. And people, if they're going to invest, will want to know what's going to happen to Hong Kong after 2047. So it's not an issue that Beijing can dodge for, for too long. And at that point... And Jocelyn, uh, yes. can I answer the rest of the question? <laughs> In two, two minutes. <laughs> This thing, both, is interesting because you have one communist newspaper in Hong Kong attacking the other two traditionally communist newspapers. I believe this thing, both, that the people behind them were from the military and then Xi Jinping. So you, have, you could have Xi Jinping fighting with the, the, the other leaders of China. So that is why it's interesting to look at Hong Kong and see how this is this will end. Now, I hope, I hope that the same part has been saying all the good things about Hong Kong actually. It's been condemning the liaison office, things which I've been saying for years. And now they seem to be, I find agreement with them. So I'm very happy to do that. Ethnic minorities is a big question. But how do you expect a government to really be fair to the minorities, or the ethnic minorities, when, there is, when the people have not been given the vote? When you have a democracy, you have a better chance to have the government look after the ethnic minorities' interests than a non-democratic government. Of course, it could end up like uh, uh, Donald Trump. 
democracy will connect it. The Republican Party may be destroyed by Donald Trump, but believe in the people. I think it may in fact cause the Republican Party to reform. And all they need is a state a statesman, or maybe better statesman. And then you can uh, uh, you can do better even before. Now, how will Hong Kong go from from here? We won't answer. And hey, 